Hello, beautiful people, and welcome back to the Buddy Ruski Show. This is episode 15. 15 is a serendipitous number for us this week. We hit 15 Patreon subscribers on Saturday. We published Soundtrack Volume 15 featuring a slew of songs produced by prolific indie pop, hip-hop, indie rock producer Danger Mouse, one of my favorites. And we have episode 15 of the Buddy Ruski Show, so quite a lot uh, to wrap our minds around this week. Um, really excited to be back at the podcast desk. This is actually an older recording of my conversation with Nicole. We met in between the times that I was in Vermont teaching with Putney Student Travel. As many of you know who follow me on social or read the newsletter have seen that I've been in and out of my home uh, this year for a number of reasons, teaching, going out to Utah to see the national parks out there with Holland and Carter. So uh, it's been a little tough to have some consistency at the podcast desk, but I'm excited to finally have a chance to interview so many guests that I've had uh, on my radar for some time now. But this conversation with Nicole is great. Uh, It definitely aged well. We're still amidst the coronavirus, so all the COVID talk, unfortunately, um, has also aged appropriately. Uh, But again, really excited to uh, share this conversation with you. Nicole is uh, the founder of Empowered Dance Studio in downtown Durham, but outside of that is just an incredible person, offers a lot to the community. Durham, born and raised, uh, you'll hear a, a pretty funny tidbit about how our paths aligned in Durham without us even knowing it. So uh, without further ado, let's jump into this conversation. Uh, if you haven't already, check out the Patreon page, patreon.com backslash Buddy Ruski. Going to be putting a lot more up there in the coming weeks, maybe some patron exclusive content. So uh, yeah, definitely check out the Patreon page uh, and let's get into our conversation with Nicole. Nicole Oxendine, thanks for being on the Buddy Ruski Show today. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here and chat with you, <laughs> seeing you from the distance, but just now get a chance to interact and talk about what is happening in my life. And yeah, I imagine it's quite a bit as a, um, you know, as we're all dealing with COVID, as a small business owner, uh, as a person of color during the time of protests and uh, big conversation around racial injustice. Um, I'm sure there's a lot on your mind. So I appreciate you taking the time to uh, try and step out of that a little bit and and talk about maybe some fun stuff uh, for for an hour or so uh, before we have to return to the this crazy world that we live in. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you, uh, like many of my guests, are from Durham. Uh, grew up here. It sounds like you school all the way through, you know, elementary to high school here. Um, I, I have my own perceptions of what Durham was like, because I also grew up here in Durham, um, sort of before the big renaissance 
at the uh, you know the start of the last decade but what was Durham like for you growing up and how did that sort of shape the direction that um, that your life took sort of going into your professional career? Yeah, and I like that you asked that during this time, I've really been reflecting about my growing up in Durham. Um, I grew up in country Durham in the county um, off a dirt road <laughs> uh, before RTP was built. So RTP, I remember it being built in my backyard, literally. Um, so going up on that side of town, I felt like I had a very interesting and diverse experience of Durham um, based on the neighbors playing hard. I mean, I love watching Stranger Things. I'm like, gosh, you like watch it and you may like, where are the parents? Like, this is like, this is me, us riding on the four wheeler trail, trails and walking around in the, you know, like exploring in the backyard with the crew of kids. Like that was really for me how I grew up. And then uh, grew up in a very uh, religious family um, so we always, in an international church, so my pastor was Ghanaian and his wife was Mexican, and we would always have in our home people from different backgrounds, from different cultures that just moved into Did you city. go to Life International? Uh, I sure did. My grandparents have been going to that church for like 30 years. Wait a second. Who are your grandparents? <laughs> Leon and Dolores Stevens. Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, I know them. Like, yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh I, this really is so cool. Durham like, yeah. <laughs> it's like there's no way that there's not been some crazy intersection of our lives if you're in, if you're from Durham that's really that cool. is so crazy well yeah so then you know the church that I is do. the church that I've been going to yeah. since how old am I 30 something years so yeah cool <laughs> yeah so I mean it gave me a good context for me and my family would always have Sunday dinner Every Sunday, we would, you know, open our doors and just feed people. It was like right after church, just come and eat. Um, and, you know, I look at that now and, you know, looking at how I am, how I was as a child and just always knowing my parents opened up the door and we were very community centric going to a church that was just always welcoming and opening, um, opening our space to people gave me a very diverse experience um that I don't think I appreciated until I like left Durham <laughs> to go live in another city I was like oh my gosh I grew up in a very in very enmeshed very mixed cultural um background and you know even if I even though I was in the country you know right. <laughs> with my you know some of my white friends who you know parents didn't you know didn't like black people but you know we all play you know so it wasn't that that feel um that you don't really know or get as a child you just experience it um so i don't know if i answered that fully just to kind of talk a little bit about that um you know my country i would say <laughs> cultural country background <laughs> yeah and i think that um you know many of the people that i've talked to that are from durham have had similar experiences as kids growing up and feeling like they had a real community around them regardless of what neighborhood they grew up in that there's this thread around you know for generations around building community in Durham and how important that is to people and how it impacts children that grow up here and the way that they view the world and the way and the values that they have uh, as they become young adults and go off to college become business owners and try to instill those same values so I think that that's something that's been a part of Durham's ethos for a long time that's not a new Durham philosophy that has been part of Durham yeah. for for a long time so did you feel like uh 
that same experience that you had with uh, church and in your neighborhood, did that translate to the schools you were going to as well? Was there that same sense of community and diversity in the school system? Yeah, so interesting enough, my age probably, I'm going to give my age a little bit, was city and county. I remember when the city and county became one, and that was the shift in the school system. Um, and to say this, I was a teacher for 13 years. So like, um, and I was the first class through the new hillside. So, okay. <laughs> um, and that new hillside was the redistricting. If you remember that time, like, and it was, you know, so let's go to Jordan based on the district. So that was a huge shift for me. It was a cultural shift. Um, Hillside was all, you know, was predominantly black school. Um, however, they were trying to that push this integration, which is crazy that it's in the nineties and we're, you know, the whole concept of like, we're gonna integrate this school now and it's not gonna be all black. It stayed, you know, most, I have a few white classmates that went to went to Hillside with me, uh, but it was a cultural shift because my, friends were now no longer, people who I was in school with were no longer um, the diverse group that I had, you know, played with, you know, so school now was just a very different experience, and I love my time at Hillside, it showed me the span of Black people, and that was a thing that, you know, that, you know, now everybody's Black, so, you know, in these other schools, it's like, all right, well, the football players are the Black guys, or, you know, like, you know, <laughs> the, the, the jocks and the cheerleaders and the theater geeks, it's just like, you have the theater geeks are also Black, the nerds, so it wasn't this, how you section off, and a lot of times it becomes about race, and you identify with your, yourself um, racially, it was, I see people from all socioeconomic backgrounds, I mean, my closest friend is former Mayor Bell, Christian Bell, like, you know, so, you know, you fam your people's, you know, who were descendants of the uh, Black Wall Street that you're going to school with in these families, so you have this incredible legacy, you also have classmates that are living in, the, you know, they're living in the dual terrace, too, so it, the experience of Hillside going from, like, a diverse growing up, you know, being younger, but going to Hillside into this Black community was, it was a amazing and really did shape a lot for me because I was able to see blacks as not just fitting in one category. Yeah, do you, um, were there other schools that you had an opportunity opportunity to go to uh, and did your parents sort of push you towards Hillside for that reason, do you think? Well, I'm the oldest of five. I should probably have premised okay. that. <laughs> um, and we're all pretty close in age. And all of my siblings went to a different school. So uh, wow. for high school. So we went to the same middle elementary and middle school, but the magnet schools were a big deal um, then. So my parents didn't, I mean, it was take the bus to wherever's closest. So by the time I was driving, I was taking all of my siblings. I one that went to Jordan. Riverside, DSA, like I was, the, you know, the transport yeah. <laughs> to picking and dropping off my uh, siblings from school. So uh, they did, you know, I didn't as the oldest, but they, my siblings all had opportunities to, you know, so I got a chance to kind of have their experience. Um, and we talk about those things of how they experienced school. What was the, um, when you think back on how the black experience was talked about or um, brought up in the educational system. Do you feel like looking back that it was um, sort of adequate to, uh, or adequate enough for equipping both black students in terms of knowing their own history, but also 
other people and and how to have those conversations around um you know some of the things that we're dealing with right now yeah it's interesting because i was a high because i taught you know at hillside for so long um you know being so i, I think my perspective is going to be very different on this I, when i was a student i didn't I was maybe more connected to it because of my classmates and I would see their parents' names on the wall. You know, like you would see, oh, that's a, see a last name of someone, you would see them and you would know. And the history of Hillside as well, where you had some of these, and I think old school teachers, like some of these that have been around for years that are teaching and it's like going to an HBCU and you get that knowledge because it's just passed down because your teacher is still in the community and connected to the community and maybe went to Hillside like I did. And, you know, so kind of that same, cycle so that legacy that you do have what i have seen as a teacher now um is that there's not that connection so those teachers have passed on and if you don't have a teacher that's still connected to the community they're not sharing those even if you're teaching chemistry they're still talking about you know like you get the black history and you know how that connects you get that but you don't have that right now in the school system that these students are not getting it and even when i bring some of my classmates are doing amazing things anytime i have my come speak to the kids come talk to them so they can see that you have you can have role models that are not so far gone but someone that came through this school that came out and did those things um it's something that you might want to do so i i think i mean i wish that durham black history was taught in the school you know what i mean like yeah. i wish that was now i think these kids don't know about Black Wall Street. You know, I just learned later, you know, later in life. And that's that piece that we should be learning about our heritage. Um, and if you don't have a direct connection to it, then, you know, that's where our history gets lost. And that's really unfortunate. Yeah, I certainly didn't know growing up that schools like T. Spalding and Shepherd Middle School were named after these really important yeah. figures in Durham's history. And you know, uh, I mean, I would even say like outside of just Black Wall Street, I would say Durham history across the board. It just was not like I didn't learn about the the Dukes either. I just think that Durham history was kind of lost um, in the shuffle of all the other things we were trying to uh, that they were trying to teach us. But it's it. you're right that it's important to have role models that are rooted in your community and places that you can touch. You know, when you go to a school like Shepherd as a, as a young black person and learn the history about why, you know, uh, a prominent black businessman and scholar, um, you know, was so influential that they had this school named after them. That does a lot to your psyche in terms of how you see yourself and your peers and your potential um, versus, you know, we, we learn about folks like Martin Luther King and George Washington yeah. Carver and Rosa Parks, who are obviously very important, um, you know, figures in the movement, but they're not quite as tangible. You know, we're, to your point, like we don't have uh, neighbors or peers whose parents were part of Black Wall Street. Um, and so, so making those connections is, is really valuable to shaping how young people see themselves and particularly um, people of color. So, um, you know, it's, it's nice just to hear that at least maybe in some of the schools, um, 
there was a little bit of that being discussed because of the communities that existed within the school walls. And I'll go back and say historically, it's not just, it's not, it's not happening right now. Yeah. <laughs> not to the extent. So and I, you... it makes me come like, mm-hmm. no, go ahead. No, I just was thinking it, it does bring me to why empower is important to me. Like that, that's a rooted to that piece of that exposure and, and feeling limited in the school system by how to, how can we educate and what's that next level and how can we impart in this, you know, in the next generation so that they know um, their history and they can be empowered by that. They can see tangible um, people that they can touch and that, you know, okay, this person, I mean, our building, uh, my building was owned by two black women when I, when we moved downtown and I just brought them into the class, you know, the two owners, Elaine and Dawn. And I was like, look, you know, like there's these two black women, they're going to, they own the building that Empower is going to be in, you know, like just that thing of like, you don't have to be a dancer per se, but look at this, you can own a building, you know, like just that, like you said, that psyche of just how do you, it's so important at a young age to do that um, and to be in the sea and understand those images. So I'm extremely passionate about children getting that, um, having those seeds planted. Were you uh, a dancer growing up? Did you do a lot of dance as a young person? I danced in church. Okay. <laughs> um, and I say it, and I say that lightly. Um, I actually, you know, I definitely believe that was a huge blessing for me because the teacher that I had, she was happy to be from like, from France, well-trained, like, so we're definitely, I'm playing in her garage on the ballet bar to gospel music and Christian songs, you know, like, so I did get a great dance education. Um, and it just really linked on at Hillside. So I danced at Hillside um, in high school. I started late um, at uh, 11 officially, um, but eight, I was dancing like all the time. Like it was just, and anytime I talk to kids and they're like, you know, I'm like, are you a dancer? We've been dancing. And they're like, well, they haven't been in school. And I'm like, well, you dance at home, right? Like, they're like, yeah. And I'm like, well, that's where I started dancing, like <laughs> in the living room, you know? Um, and given kind of that validity of uh, dance. So yeah, I started pretty young went through once I was hooked into dance and after high school, I knew I wanted to pursue it um, to some degree. Um, we can get into that later, but that wasn't a career. So dance is just a hobby or a talent, something you do on the side. Um, so I was never, um, didn't put the mindset on. So I, my degree is psychology and dance um, for college, but I, I wanted to go to school for dance, but I was not, you know, that's not that was not the thing to do <laughs> when I was growing up that was like yeah you gotta dance on the side <laughs> and be a lawyer or something <laughs> like <laughs> but did those two things even time? go together I mean I think that I feel like if you were a lawyer and said that you danced on the side it's almost like those are two conflicting states of mind and like two conflicting communities that don't really mesh together so that but that also goes to uh, what you talked about in terms of the communities that you had at Hillside where we have all these different reflections of personalities within the black community. And I think that that's something that even to this day, many folks uh, really, you know, of all races sort of deal with this internal struggle between what is acceptable within their culture and what they, you know, feel in their core and want to pursue. And so that clashing of uh, culture internally can make it really difficult for people to find their footing. And it sounds like maybe you went through some of that as you're leaving high school, you know, yeah. wanting to pursue dance, but also being told and 
sort of absorbing that dance, it, there's no future in dance. And so I have to think of, uh, you know, a different plan A and, and dance will be my side hustle or my plan B. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, that's, and I think in our black community, it's doctor, lawyer, teacher, you know, like, <laughs> those are like, uh, one of the, one of the few of those, that's your checklist, where you going to be, and, you know, I was like, I guess a lawyer then, I don't, and I said, I never wanted to be a teacher, and I never wanted to have a dance studio, like, I was like, I never want to be a teacher, and I never want to have a dance studio, <laughs> so I'm going to keep saying my never, so that, um, <laughs> Never want to be a billionaire, whatever. Um, but <laughs> I say that um, I do, you know, and this, I, I keep going back. So when I did begin to teach, that was one of those things of like, how can I expand that concept? So you don't have to be, because I did, I felt very torn. I mean, I went through, I, I quit dancing for a year in college. Like, I, you know, I was very, um, I did all the right things. I was like SGA VP. I ran Senate. I was was a congressional intern. Um, Where did, did you go to school? Collins University, an all women's college in Roanoke, okay. Virginia. <laughs> um, and that was a. I mean, that was also an amazing experience for me finding my voice um, at an all women's college. It just really helped me to not because I'm very shy. Uh, where the buzzword is introverted, but it's like, I was a creative. I've always been a creative. So it's that piece of like, how do you express yourself? Um, for me, dance was my expression, but I wasn't, couldn't always, I had all these thoughts and all these things, but how do I speak in a room sometimes or um, not being threatened by the male voice or the mansplaining, like <laughs> I didn't experience. So it really did build my voice to go to all women's college and ties back around to why empower is so important to me. So did you, you said you skipped dancing uh, or sort of put a pause on dancing for a year. Did, uh, did the university have uh, a dance program or did you have to pick up dancing again yeah. outside of the school? So ironically, it was one of the best programs and I was played, uh, the Dean of the American Dance Festival was my professor. Um, so what she would do, um, she, anybody that came to American Dance Festival would be vetted and taught they would come and teach us first. Uh, so I, if I name who I've been trained by in the dance world, it's it's pretty <laughs> it's pretty significant. Even people who are just getting their starts that she's launched their careers. Um, she now runs University of the Arts um, in Philadelphia, but she was very um, innovative and creative around dance and how to think about dance. Um, I also started in that department as arts administration, but I was also the only black girl in a small program. Um, so that was also a lot of anxiety around um, that, even cultural anxiety for me of like, all right, I, I, you know, I don't, didn't naturally have rhythm. I'm more of a ballet dancer. Um, so if we had somebody come in that was teaching a certain style, I would, I would feel very intimidated. Um, weight, size, all of those things in my body and just feeling like, you know, you're already hyper analyzing yourself as a dancer. So you add being a dancer of color and the only one in the room. Um, it, it becomes really hard. Another person I remember lashing one to is she's now a professor at Duke, Andrea Woods, all day. She's like my mentor now. But any black teacher that came in, I was like, <laughs> teach me. Like, and I would just latch on um, to be, and it was like, I say this, it was like maybe two people, like, and the, and the one dancer that was before me, a class before me, I really just latched on to. But just knowing that I didn't, I needed and was craving that. I need someone to nurture me and to develop and grow me as a dancer because I don't feel like I was getting that 
growth or I was being ignored. Um, I wouldn't be cast in pieces because I didn't have the look. So all of those things, and I'm sure any dancer of color can tell you this is the experience that you go through um, in this space. So that was one of the reasons why I quit dancing uh, for that year was I didn't feel like there was a place for me and my type of expression um, in the world of dance. And you didn't see that in the world you're looking at. And once again, I'm also, we're back and forth at the American Dance Festival. You know, like it's not, <laughs> we're, it's, it's a small school, but we weren't isolated in that sense of where my classmates have been launched into careers. You know, they're still performing with companies um, to this day, but knowing for me that wasn't my journey but did not understanding that then my journey was to be that dancer I mean sitting on the side not get like <laughs> not getting chosen but having that piece is once again what pushed me and propelled me okay I want to make sure that dancers are trained are equipped if they want to go into this world have a sense of okay what is it that you need to know what are the cultural things that you need to know to be able to like get into a company if that's what you want to do like I just you know and I didn't I didn't have any of that context in school. Were there some expectations when it's, it sounds like a lot of your traditional training in dance uh, before college was in ballet. Do you feel like there was an expectation of you as a black woman to be able to perform certain types of dance or sort of being typecasted as a certain type of dancer? Um, and, and, again, sort of those conflicting uh, stereotypes or like cultural aspects where you, there's your expectation over here and sort of what you have trained yourself in over here and, and they're not meeting in the middle. Yeah, the, the program I was in was very selective um, and I could see it when I, after I was in, I didn't understand it per se. Um, because I didn't understand, like I said, the cultural piece of it. So as a black dancer coming in, I should have been at a certain level in all skill. Like you had, like it's the same thing. You gotta be, you know, twice as good to get half as much. And I wasn't, I didn't have enough training. I wasn't at, some of these kids were coming from school of the arts, you know, like who had, you know, <laughs> years of training in ballet and modern. And I'm in a modern program where they're trying to get you to learn a little bit of everything. Um, not everything, but your instructors were coming in from, like I say, all different genres um, of dance. And if you have strong foundational technique, you can adapt to it a little bit better. But if you didn't have that like hours of training or I didn't come from traditional studio background, um, that was a huge barrier for me um, to even, and you know, to be in the space where for me, I was just naturally talented. Um, and I needed that kind of additional like some of the terminology I didn't even know so that was a whole thing of like oh my ballet teacher is not demonstrating they're going to talk to you in French you know they're going to give you the full and you have to be able, and they're not going to like you don't you don't get like a long time to go over and walk it through and they're gonna be like all right go <laughs> and it's like uh I can get it if you just give me like a little bit of time you know like that piece so I just didn't have that you know I just have to I didn't have that culture didn't understand the culture of the dance world because I wasn't raised in the culture of the dance world I was taught but not ingrained in it so people who came into that space had a huge advantage and then you add me being a person of color and not having that back you know I could have come in as a white girl and I know my experience would have been very different they would have taken me in and said okay I see what you have let's do this but oh no she's she's not even halfway there what we expect her to be so 
<laughs> yeah. So you said that you didn't, you didn't have any plans to be a teacher and you didn't want to open a dance studio, but you've done both of those things since leaving college. <laughs> so how you, you graduated as a psych major. How did you, what was the entry point into teaching? And cause it seems like in some ways that was always your destiny, having experienced some of the things that you talked about in school, feeling like you weren't empowered, uh, to be the person that you wanted to be or to at least be cultivated into the person that you wanted to be. Um, and so that there was this experience that you had that I think is what ends up leading a lot of people to teaching is wanting to make sure that, you know, the generations that come after them aren't, uh, don't experience the same things that you do. So how do you saying, you know, after saying to yourself, you're not going to teach, you're not going to open a studio, what nudges you back down that path? Um, yeah, I, this is where I go into, I've always been a creative. Uh, so when I graduated, I, and I say creative because my parents just thought I'm crazy for doing certain things. I'm just like, I just felt like doing this. So I like hopped in the car and went on this like week long trip traveling across the I don't know, the East Coast, like, I'm just gonna go find myself um, and just spend time, kind of like what I'm doing now, of like aligning and, and figuring out what I'm supposed to do in my life. And it was just very clearly dropped in my spirit, this dance. I didn't know what that was gonna be. I wasn't, had no intentions of graduating and pursuing dance at this point, um, but it was very clear and it was just dance. So I went back, I guess, to visit. I can't remember how this happened, but my former dance teacher was like, well, I'm leaving teaching at Hillside. Do you want to come and teach? And I was like, well, fine. I don't have anything else to do. It Dance still to be happening. So I'll just do this for a year. <laughs> and then I'll apply to law school or something. Like It was definitely only supposed to be a year. And I mean, I just felt I fell in love. Like it was that. And it was the joy of teaching and the joy of connecting and touching. And it was a hard year. I mean, I had girls that were in gangs, rival gangs, fighting each other at lunch, and they would both be sent to like my class. They had dance after, but no one would caught, caught who did it. Um, so, and I laugh on that because it was like, oh my God, Woody. So I would like turn the lights down, do some like low music. And then I was like, I would just go meditate. You know, like not knowing, this is just things I learned at how like that, some of the things I did in undergrad. I was like, we're just gonna breathe and do, I mean, really having a different approach and then the music that I would choose for their pieces um, I made sure they had a little just introducing them to a different culture of music that they weren't hearing or listening to it was like all right we're gonna try this African rap song okay <laughs> like to dance to um, another piece I would give them I would be intentional around the lyrics that I would give just because I could see that they were just hurting it wasn't that um the, the aggression and all that, it was just that you, I had a room of hurt girls, you know, and wanting to, knowing that this was a space. So I was very intentional around making this a safe space. So choosing lyrics of music that empowered and encouraged them and let them see themselves, pop, like, you know, I'm just putting them in, in little dresses and leotards. I mean, that was letting them be girls, you know, and let like, just like in a dance, you know, in a show or, you know, we had a costume closet full of clothes and love doing the costumes and just seeing that joy come to them was um, like one of the most rewarding moments of my life. And I'm like, okay, I'm in the right 
thing. And it just clearly 13 years later, and I say, and I should say four years later, um, there was a break in that time where I started having students share a lot of heavy things with me. Um, and I was at the point, I was like, I'm not a counselor. Um, so I'm not, a, and I would send them to the counselor and it was college applications. Like, are you serious? This girl just shared with me on sexual assault that happened to her and I'm directing her to a counselor and this is what you do. Like, so I begin once again, my, like, I honestly once again, but I became frustrated and angry with the system. Um, but also was like, there's something that's happening in my classroom that is allowing this conversation to happen. I mean, it was to the point I'd have food, pads, tampons, anything that they needed in that space. So that became a safe space. So I knew I wanted to go to grad school and was digging through programs and found dance therapy, which was psychology and dance. And that was exactly what my undergrad was. <laughs> yeah. What were some of the, or who were some of the artists that you were playing for them? uh early early on in your teaching career yeah, that's such a good question like i love this question and i also probably will do this a poll out on social media for my old students to like share back their memories mariah carey butterfly was one of the songs that um that i did that I would use erica badu um india re oh she had really good you know i mean you know india re like just great and it was for me it was that neo soul time in that era when it was like the these artists were fresh coming out. So not too much that was super old Zap Mama I really um, got into. And then I'm like, so it's like crazy to feel like you're old. I remember going to the records, like to the, there was a store downtown across from Morgan Imports. It was like a record Millennium, store. Millennium Music? Yes. Yeah. And I would go and that's how it find music sometimes I would go and go to the different genres and sections and would just listen and pick up the different, um, you know, just different to find different international music. So to me, it was finding them something that was safe in a comfort zone. Okay, I know Mariah Carey, but then let's introduce you to Zap Mama. Let's, okay, let's try Flowetry. You know, like what are these different things and then being intentional about the songs. We never used songs that were on the radio. So um, if you did have a CD trying to say, all right, let me dig into this artist and see what they're talking about. And it was really more just messaging. So it could be any artist, but do they have an empowering message? Or, you know, JoJo, you know, like, is there a song with an empowering message on their album? And that was, you know, that was always the fun part of digging into the older artists or going to the Millennium Music and finding new artists um, or things that I just needed to expose myself to. Yeah, I felt really fortunate. My dad worked in music and, and my mom was also a huge fan uh, of different things growing up. And so I, music for me was a place that I feel like my world really was expanded, even though I, I didn't necessarily travel a lot. My dad listened to a lot of world music. My mom was really into those same uh, like late 90s, early 2000s, neo soul R&B artists, um, you know, Lauren Hill, Alicia Keys, Jill Scott, uh, Queen mm -hmm. Latifah, like the full the full gambit. And so I think that that really helped me uh yeah just opened me up to different perspectives and different like you said different messaging that is really important for any young person um to hear and nah, I love Nas messaging. <laughs> yeah and i think you know it's yeah. something that i i worry about a little bit in this time that we're in that there's there's not nearly the there's not nearly the groundswell of popular artists that have the same kind of messaging and and I wonder what that does to and I feel bad whenever I you know talk about 
like music from my time being better, but I do think that there is something to be said about the messaging and just like the um, sort of like pro black pro empowerment uh, Mm -hmm. environment that a lot of those artists cultivated that is a little harder to find. It's not that it doesn't exist, but it's a little harder to find, you know, you've got your Kendrick Lamar's, you've got a couple songs from artists in there, you know, you've got Rhapsody, but uh, they're, the exception to the rule now instead of the norm. And uh, so I'm, I'm glad to hear that that was something that you leveraged was exposing them to music that, uh, you know, sort of roping them in with the artists they know and then exposing them to things that they surely would like if they had just, you know, if they're just exposed to it. And that's a key thing, and I still do this to, with my shows to this day, is I, I love exploring music and also blending music, blending genres of, of music. And, you know, even to hear there's a, I forgot, there's a piece of Basement Jacks, like love Basement Jacks, but would use some of their music and then infuse it with something, then like do these great blends. But it, you know, I feel like even parents are like, what's the sound? I need the soundtrack to your show. Like the music is so good. But, and then it comes to that point now the students would bring music to, well, I just heard this and I feel, you know, like, so that exchange of things and kind of what you were saying of having that, you know, how music can bring about community and how it can, you know, can really um, foster conversations, but also challenging this gener, the next generation to be like, all right, well, you know, and, and they had projects too. I had the same criteria that I gave myself, I would give them. So it would challenge them to kind of go and dig into music so much that they'd be bringing me things. And that, you know, even to this day, I have students that'll text me, have you heard this song? Like, and I'm like, sounds like something you would like. And I'm like, yes, love it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. It's important to have cool. those young voices sending you music. Cause I, that's a place where I feel more and more out of touch is what's it's not the mainstream anymore. Right. <laughs> right. So you uh so you were teaching at Hillside, it sounds like sort of because of the complications of being in the public school system, maybe and the things that you were dealing with that you started to see a need for an alternative outside of teaching at Hillside. Um is that where the vision for the dance studio, uh, Empower Dance Studio that you have now, is that where that began? Yeah, in a way, so after I finished grad school, um, and that was the the dance movement therapy and counseling program, um, I went back to teach it. I taught in the elementary at Club Boulevard for a little bit, and then I went back to Hillside. They actually asked me to come back (laughs) um, to Hillside to teach. Then this was after leaving for three years um, and living in Chicago. Um, so I did, so I had, I knew that I was doing the right things before, but I had a different intention of like, okay, now I understand what I'm doing. Now I have the merging the psychology behind like, okay, there's these stages of development and this is why these things are happening. And then what am I doing within my curriculum that's going to help build this sense and help, you know, one, like the, the meditation, all right, now let's bring it to a circle and we may do some of the same things, but now let's talk about some things. So we're now talking about real issues, talking about police violence and like just thinking about these things, people who, you know, the children who's, say children, teens, whose family members, brothers were, mur- you know, were murdered, you know, so you have that, um, we're able now to have the, con- before I wasn't having those conversations, 
after grad school, it, it opened me up to be able to help facilitate the convert. Like, okay, we're going to move, but today let's just, let me attune you. Let's sit, let's talk. Like it doesn't have to be, you know, that takes you back to those old school teachers of like, all right, you know, it's not just about boom, boom, boom. what else is the lesson today? Let's just sit around and let's talk about what's happening in the world, you know, and giving them license to share, you know, how it affects them talking about like personal space and, you know, how to claim your own space, which is huge. And when we talk about abuse and setting boundaries and personal boundaries. So I entered with a different lens that really helped me see that developmentally where the kids were at the high school level, what needed to happen, there was a huge gap. So when I started, when I first came back, I was in the elementary school and you see these like kids with all, and I start when I say the kindergartners with all of this, you know, I wanna say agency and power behind them. And you get to the high school and you see, you know, these girls layering themselves with makeup. And I'm like, wait, is it y'all still like pressing your hair out? Y'all not, you know, I still, we were doing Erica Badu when I first started teaching. It was like, Nash, I thought we were in, I thought this was what it was gonna be. And it wasn't, and these girls didn't want to have their natural hair. They, you know, they felt very, um, I don't want to say, it wasn't self-conscious, but it was just this thing of like not being okay in their own bodies and not being, seeing their beauty and their power. So it, it bothered me. And at the same time, I had these little girls who were about eight. They were like, I can't wait to come to Hillside and dance with you, Miss Ox. You know, and I'm like, girl, you eight years old. This is high school, you know, but it was a lot at the time. And I'm like, I see there's a connection here. Um, and I, you know, anytime there's a shift in my life, it's always a child that pushes it. So um, it was that begin to think of the connections of, okay, what if we, I were able to give what I'm doing at Hillside to this young, to younger kids? How can we start young at building that sense of self? We, we tell these girls, hey, you're beautiful, but put this makeup on and put this weave in your head. And you're telling this to young girls and, you know, put this little short top on and this, oh, girl, you pretty, you know, like it's after you dolled them up and you, did, you didn't acknowledge your beauty in its most basic form. And how can we begin to send those messages at an earlier age? Um, and I've been honing in and understanding that more, but that's really where the seeds of Empower started. Um, it was also once I said born out of that frustration of the school system of, okay, I felt like it was like pushing me out, if that makes sense. It was like, all right, the push um, into what's the next thing. I would have not jumped out here without having those. And um, it is, I am faith-based, Empower is faith-based. Um, because I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And I believe that empower and a power greater than ourselves. Um, and I look at that and I make those connections with these kids and I believe that they're most connected to it and how can we just grow them and empower them. And I can get into the tech, the technicalities of how empower started, but the vision was looking, literally just looking at me like, <laughs> when you go open up a studio for me. <laughs> yeah. Um. Was it important for you to bring these ideas back to Durham? Were there other places having spent some time in Chicago? Uh, you know, Chicago has its own uh, you know, sort of very troubled history and, and present with uh, turmoil in the black community, whether it be police violence or uh, intercommunity um, disruptions. So was, were there other places that you were looking at sort of taking your, your gifts and your lessons or did, was there a calling back to Durham that you couldn't ignore? Yeah, I think it's a 
ironic as we are, we're in COVID right now. Um, I, when I was in Chicago, I was intentional around where my internships were. I worked in a psychiatric unit, uh, primarily black and brown children. I worked in the South Side in a high school, uh, North Lawndale, not North, I'm gonna get that. High school in South Side. Then I also worked high school in East Side, uh, which is worse. Like South Side is not, you know, South Side is like Durham to me. It's not, people say it's bad, but East Side is a whole other, <laughs> whole other, I say third world country. Like that was literally how it felt. Um, not how it felt, how it looked, just everything there. Um, so I was always intentional about the, the, who I wanted to impact and what communities that I wanted to be um, connected to. Um, I, and I say, bring this back to COVID because I intended to be in Durham, but I don't, I see it's bigger than that. I know it's bigger than that. I know that the reach of what this is supposed to be is not just Durham. Um, I, logically speaking, I have a strong, like I have more connections in Durham. It's easier access point to do the things that I want to do based on my history and community and the sense and the work that I've done at Hillside. So it was very, and I also taught at North Carolina Central. So it, it's a piece of like, this is where the foundation, this is always the HQ to me. Um, and as I'm thinking of the pivot and the next transition, it is, all right, how can you, how can this be bigger to affect those children that would not, you know, that wouldn't be connected. I've even gone back to Chicago and done workshops, you know, so I don't see it as something that is Durham specifics uh, per se, just because I think the issue is larger. And I don't know how many people are thinking of dance as this tool of empowering and confidence and building confidence in the next generation um, and what that will look like for the next bosses of the world. You know, how you can enter a room and you can have so much more confidence because you you this was able to stay with you that that level of building that empowerment didn't just go out the window but you started that with those planting those seeds at a young age of like all right i can do this i can do anything like i can approach this i have the confidence to um enter rooms that <laughs> uh, people who don't look like me and not feel like i'm an imposter you know <laughs> yeah tell us a little bit about the technicality for how empower came to be in where you think it stands out in terms of the work that you're doing to cultivate that sense of self-confidence and um, and and pride in the students that come through your studio? Yeah, um, so just the, the few things I always say was three catalyst points that pushed me into, all right, it's time, even though it had been weighing on my spirit for a while. Um, one of my first, people who ever introduced me to dance when I was eight, came back into my life randomly and was like, hey, come see Alvin Ailey with me. It was a snowstorm or something. I was like, yes, I will go see Alvin Ailey with you. Um, so I went with her and she was the spiritual mother to the artistic director, um, the other dancer, Hope Boykin, who's from Durham and a few other dancers. Like, so she wasn't just going, you know, like she was going there as, oh, she's a mentor person. I'm like, okay, this woman comes back into my life. I haven't seen her since I was like, you know, eight, you know? Um, so, so I was really young. So her coming back into my life and really just reinforcing the need and really having that conversation and spending time with me and saying, you know, this is something that is needed. This is something like what your, what your vision is, talk to me about what that could be, um, began to formulate with her. My other one was I, um, 
I'm hopping to the third one. So I'm going to hop to the, the I'm like, that was the first one. Uh, second one was just the school system was the kind of that, that pushing out. I was doing so much for so many other people. Um, so I was performing in a company at the time. I was, the Hillside program is very rigorous. If anybody knows Durham, like not only was I teaching, we had after school program. You've heard Mr. Tabs plays, who was doing all the choreography. Like you're looking at week, weeks, <laughs> months, most of the year. Uh, and when you're good at it, you, you get more. Um, <laughs> more work so that was taking a lot of time and I was also working at American Dance Festival um starting or starting that early in May so my level of work and what I was doing at the time was very high but it was also and I'm sorry leading the district for Durham public for the dance teachers so I was the lead teacher um running doing a lot of programs so a lot of my time was being put out but it wasn't being appreciated and that was that piece of like okay I'm working so hard for other people in the same way that I need to go in, that I need to, I want to empower others. How can I empower myself? Because at that point I wasn't feeling empowered. I was feeling very defeated and I was just feeling exhausted and I was feeling frustrated and angry and upset. Um, and still feeling like I want to make a better, I want to make a bigger difference. I want to do more. And I see these kids and they need so much, but I can't, you know, like I'm, <laughs> there's not so much I have to give. Um, so I, at this point, I'm like, I know a studio needs to happen because I need to have a long-term plan so that I can financially be better because I can't, staying at the school system is not effective um, because it's also not being recognized. The work that I'm doing, you know, even, and I say this Hillside on a national level, like we were traveling, um, getting accepted to perform for the International Dance uh, festival. We placed first in the state for dance competition. These kids had not had only four years, maybe three years of experience or training with me and getting to that level, um, but still not being, you know, recognized or appreciated within the school system and not even getting tenure. So that was a whole other like piece. Um, so when I, once I knew the student needed to start, um, I said, I just need a studio director at this point. I have to keep my job teaching, but I need someone to help run the studio. One of my former students, um, which a lot of my alum will come back and I'll just, they'll work with me and help me do things. And I just pretty much training for them. And she was like, well, all I want to do is be a studio director. And I was like, uh, <laughs> okay, <laughs> this is happening. And that was Jessica Burroughs. And it, I mean, and it, from then on, it just went so quickly that it just feels like such a whirlwind. This is five years this month of the business and we started with 25 students we're at 125 now um low revenue i should say no we were at haytai heritage center um most of the student most of the teachers might have been either current high school students or former students that <laughs> brought on to teach um but it's just i mean it's exponentially grown and uh, a lot of that work was grounded in that sense of community um, that we always, and it's a family atmosphere, uh, we're family oriented. And I think, you know, I love it when dads call the studio and they're like, I'm looking for something for my daughter to do. She dancing around and, and you know, they, I know they've done their research and they're looking specifically because of one, I'm very intentional about what the girls wear. 
that they're co that they're covered, um, you know, that the lid this might, that the lid tards fit, you know, that there's a thick strap you need to wear a bra underneath it, that it's something that covers your butt, you know, and that the tights match your skin color. Like we take that time to match that, and you know, and that piece of having everyone wear the same thing is also an, an equal is equity. Um, a lot of times you see other studios where okay, well you can afford to buy the fancier lid tart when everybody gets the same basically tart that that comes with your package. Um, and then where we can be appreciating our differences, our skin and our hair texture. And that, you know, I'm not forcing the slick back bun. You can have all kinds of different styles you can do with your hair that are still acceptable, um, but you just don't get at traditional studios. And we're not having girls in here with, you know, eight-year-olds with little midriffs on and short shorts and heavy makeup. Like, that's not what you're going to see here. Um, so like I said, I love when the dads call because I already know that that's what they looked at. <laughs> They've noticed that in the marketing. <laughs> More so than the moms. It's kind of funny, though. <laughs> like, we chose this studio. <laughs> yeah. I I wonder how, so, you know, social media and specifically things like TikTok, I, I'm not on TikTok. I don't really understand it fully. I just know that it's a very dance-friendly platform. And I'm wondering, are they on it? Yeah. I mean, it seems inevitable for anyone under the age of, like, 15. Um. <laughs> But I wonder how that impacts the way that young people see themselves and, and how that may affect the way that you're uh, teaching, what you're teaching and how you're teaching, where so many kids, sort of their value comes from their presence on social media and specifically with, uh, you know, how they present themselves physically, whether that be you know, all the things you mentioned before, like the way they wear their hair, the makeup they put on. Um, but even now with something like TikTok, like the dance videos that they do, you know, a lot of kids are doing, you know, they're, they're dancing very early on, maybe not in a traditional sense, but they're on camera doing all these crazy dances. Um, but I, I want, I'm curious if it affects, um, sort of like what their what that kind of performance is for and if they understand the difference between sort of like traditional performance in a dance studio versus doing things on camera for TikTok and and the value in one or the other I mean, it just seems like social media plays such a big part in teaching in general but I'm wondering how specifically it affects you with with dancers yeah, one thing that I know Empower is unique, and I've heard this from several other studios, is we do a lot of performances. Um, I don't know how often, like, they, they're almost every, in a lot of cases, we're not as competition focused, that we're more community performance based. Um, and one thing I love seeing them, and it's even teaching them of like, okay, when someone, after you perform, you say, thank you, know, you're well, thank you, you know, or someone compliments you, you say, you know, thank you. What, it's just to teach them kind of that performance etiquette but giving them that exposure in front of an audience is not just the recital, the big kind of piece, but that I think, and I say this because I think it helps distinguish or make the difference of understanding, okay, this is 
this is you giving something to someone you're performing for an audience at a community event um your part that you're part of that is something that people are receiving and it's not just i'm coming to see my child on stage it is being a part of a greater community i think there is definitely challenges with social media in the same vein because it's doing certain things for likes and then what is the appearance or the thing that pushes you know that gets you there and that's kind of going back to the high school you see most of the and i say this the contour and the faces like it people begin to do the same things because that's what's on trend and that look um so now we have like TikTok, which is on trend um and i think how can we use and I, in my brain i'm like how can we use that platform and i would use um taking this back before like YouTube videos. That's how I would get the best performances out of my students. And I would be like, I'm making this a YouTube video. So I'm gonna record this and I'm gonna put this on our YouTube channel and you can have it to share. That would get the performance. And then if I'm in the studio now, I'm recording you all, this is for social media. Okay, they get it all the way together. And I'm like, you were looking real bad before I said this. <laughs> we're gonna put you on social. But how do you use that in the way that's like, okay, let's, elevate and to have them elevate so i i don't have the answer to the TikTok question because i haven't i don't think anyone it, does I yeah I, but i think it's that how do you build that community um or how can you build a community understand that who is on the other side of that and i think that's that performance piece of you get to see the reaction of it it's that interaction of being able to see how someone responds to you um, as you are dancing and moving and, you know, or, you know, your performance piece. And I think if we can figure out how to make that happen, it would kind of shift that or just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's some ownership of that, those performances and that culture that I think is important too, because I've read too many articles at this point about even before TikTok on things like Instagram and Vine, where black creatives are coming up with things and then they get adopted and uh, are not credited for sort of being the source of the fad or trend or whatever it is. Um, this happened, I don't remember what dance it is now. I think it was happening around the NBA All-Star Game where there were people doing this particular TikTok dance thing and folks on Twitter were getting really upset because the young black woman who had started it like wasn't being wasn't the person at nba all-star weekend performing the dance and it was like this doesn't seem right and um and it just seems like that story is uh you know happens too often and so i, I feel like there's a opportunity specifically with social media to like teach some um ownership uh, you know like this isn't just you performing for likes and shares but like you can leverage your cultural influence into other avenues um, that, you know, then one day you can like have the power to buy your own building to bring it full circle. Um, so I, yeah, I'm, I'm curious sort of how you see in, in this day and time leveraging uh, the lessons that you're teaching to propel students that may not be considering dance, but what, what are they getting out of dance that uh, will you know, last their last their lifetime? Yeah, and I think it's really interesting you talk about the license, like I can say licensing, but the it, we talk about this in choreography, like you know you you create something and 
it can be taken if you put out there. And we've had these conversations years ago when this, when videos, you know, it first started becoming popular and what does that look like now? Um, and I think of like going back to like ownership and that's something that's so important to me. Uh, okay, yes, I was going to be a, not, not going to say going to be a lawyer, but um, so it was steered away from the opportunity of dance could be a career and it's something that you could make money off of. Um, as opposed to okay now that you've gotten to this space what were the steps what were the what were the lessons like okay yes i'm a dancer but i'm also a business owner um an entrepreneur that i didn't go to school for that you know like i learned this through trial and error and what i want to give is like what if i would have known this what if i would have had this information before what where would that have propelled me or put me and that's the same premise of me why Empower exists and that's the next phase for me is, all right, what if I give this information to a young child? Okay, not just the dancer. What if we talked about business and we talked about, and I'm talking to one of my young dancers now, which I need to call her, Mia's Cupcakes, Mia's Munchies, who's starting a business. Uh, and we've been having phone calls and we talk business, you know? And I'm like, we're gonna, you send me an email, we're gonna schedule a business meeting and we're gonna talk about, you know, let's talk about your numbers, tell me what your pitch is. Like, I see that as being a way to, okay, I have these dances, the tool, if that makes sense for connection. And then it's like, all right, what do you want to do? What, what, okay, let's go, go into how do you get there? You know, um, and challenging them and giving them the information that, gosh, if I wish I would have known that, like I say this, like, I just, I learned that one the hard way. Well, let me give it back. Let me pay it forward by, let me tell Mia, <laughs> okay, let me make sure when you first start, don't do this. You need to make sure you do this. You know, like this is just those pieces of things to make them begin to think because once again, children are such fertile ground. Like you just plant the right seeds and, you know, you can watch that grow and how that just, um, can really shape their lives. And I think that's just really the start, but I also think that's the next phase of where I would like to go is um, how do you empower the next generation of leaders? Um, how do you give them tools for business and how do you connect them? Like I love networking and meeting people, but let me connect you to this young entrepreneur, you know, so that you can give them your advice and your piece of what, you, what they could do um, and how you, you know how that can influence their business and you receive something from that like i receive so much i say these kids keep me young <laughs> that's how i'm really old when i said that these <laughs> kids keep me young <laughs> i uh i've got sort of one more thought that i want to um explore before we get out of here uh with all the um you know the protests that have been happening the last i guess it's only really been a couple weeks it feels like forever um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's uh, the the I think that the momentum that we have right now for these conversations is really important and I'm happy as hard as it is to have these conversations I'm happy to see that the the pressure is still on for leaders around the country and really around the world to to step up and make real change because people are not just asking for it and tweeting about it, but really like taking it upon themselves to, uh, to be the change they want to see in the world. I'm curious what you, um, what you sort of hope to see on the other side of this. What's one thing that you um, are envisioning or, or, or hope is, or one of the major outcomes for the current um, 
that's sort of the current situation that we're they're in right now. Yeah, well, the the I want to say the challenge for me is that I am kind of a radical in my thought process, <laughs> and I've uh, when we talk about the uh, that you're just being tired right now is because I, I've always been so I get upset, and I've been upset before this. You know what I mean? I've been upset about I've been upset about being okay. I didn't raise capital. I didn't come in with the business and have someone give me a hundred thousand, five hundred thousand, like to do whatever I wanted to do. Um, and it's because I'm a black woman, you know, or not specifically, but in that piece of like, what are the rooms? What are the doors? You know, like black entrepreneurship wasn't a big deal when I first started, you know, like people weren't really into it. Um, so I just, I, I guess I'm in that same sense of like, I'm just as angry as everyone else. And I feel like I've been holding that anger and trying to navigate into a world so that I could get to a certain place as a business owner. Um, I, I've, I say this because now in my emails and my, any of my correspondence, if you people have been very clear, if it, like, is this about black lives? Like, are you making sure you give enough money to the black person? Do you have somebody, you know, like just challenging in ways that I have not challenged before uh, because you have to figure out how to maneuver and how to be just for me, sometimes being the right black girl so that you can be in the room so that you're not the one always yelling and being like, well, this is, you know, the most wokest so that that's not the, it's hard to be successful per se and still be the locust in the room with that like oh here she come again talk about this black car you know and that's always been me you know it's that piece and and now with this kind of i feel like this can of worms that has exploded and opened is to continue to challenge if you weren't challenging before but in your space to challenge ask the questions because it won't you know i don't want to we're not going to go back to a normal but it's definitely what will this world look like if we continuously keep our voices in the forefront but it's also like burn it down if it needs to be burnt down like change it up shift it completely throw it out like what does it take for that level of like you know i'm that person like if there's a wound dig into it there's no way you can just put a band-aid on it it's what we've been doing for so long and now it's like gotten so big it's like a pus <laughs> so it's like it's popped and it's like dig into it before anything can start because we're i think we're just still digging and we're still digging and we're still digging and i just think keep challenging any opportunity you have any space that you're in um if you have a seat at the table and you're that black person speak up now and not just speak up in a way that you have to be the voice but speak up in the way that says well i've been saying this somebody else needs to bring this to the table you know like let that happen in the room but if you're sometimes your presence alone is going to incite those conversations and that's what's been happening on my end is just me being sitting in a room and then maybe saying one or two things and then stepping back and then okay yep yeah, because you see me in the room but making sure that we stay in the rooms and we're still challenging in those rooms that we might not have been challenging in before how can folks that are listening support your work Good question. <laughs> um, right now, it's kind of a hard, I think the biggest thing is staying in touch with us, I would say. Um, the the social media, uh, that's the biggest piece right now. Um, I think that's where my next push was interesting. You mentioned that is really pushing ways to connect and engage um, via social, which is Empower Dance, or me personally, Nicole, double underscore Oxendine. Um, any support to our foundation, um, which is 
EmpowerDanceFoundation.org um, uh, just to help get us back, you know, going. I'll probably be launching some sort of fundraising piece um, as I'm talking about what's next. So I say just stay connected because the next pivot will be coming um, as I kind of taking this time to rest and align and listen to God's voice and where I'm being led to go with um, with the next iteration of business. So. My grandparents will be so excited to hear that I interviewed you today. I'll, I'll be sure to share the uh, this podcast with them and and let them know that they uh, that their leadership in the church has um, you know birthed the new the next generation of of leaders in Durham. Thanks again so much for for doing this with me. I, I really enjoyed uh, having this conversation and getting to know more about your story, and I'm sure everyone else will as well. So I hope you enjoy your. Uh, your time away and your return to Zen um, and feel uh, twice as strong when you when you come back and we can kind of return to whatever the new normal is uh, and, and get back to the work that we're all doing. Talk to you soon. Talk to you later. Tell your grandparents I said hello. I will. <laughs>